Drama. Who doesn't love drama? Good podcasting drama. Let's mainline it. Tapping my arms. Putting the belt around my bicep in order to make the vein bulge. Because I'm about to uh, inject myself with drama. With drama. Podcasting drama. It's been so long. Welcome back. I'm like Courtney Love. Needle in my hand. It's been so long. Hello, old friend. Look. I rode that brown tiger for 20 years. It took me through a carnival of hell. I became the plaything of Indonesian businessmen. By the end, I was barely human. But I'm willing to give it another shot. Oi, Reagan Fox. Reagan Fox. Fox in the city. Fox in the city. Stuck me in the tuchus. Stuck me in the tuchus. And give me an oi If you enjoy drama, go put on your eating dress, slip into your eating negligee, because I have a feast for you. I've been slaving away in the hot kitchen, and here you are. Hold on, let me try to fix my levels. Is that better? Does that sound better? Yeah, that sounds better. Best to do, best to figure out all my technical issues on the fly. I'm still trying to get used to this new microphone at any rate. Slaving away is probably not the best metaphor. I was listening to the Sarah Silverman podcast, and she made a really interesting point about language and oppression. And here, I'll just play the clip for you so you can hear it for yourself. So I have this friend who I adore and we text um he always texts me videos like a video texts basically it's that app Marco Polo but it's not he texts he makes videos and texts it to me of himself talking I don't think that's actually pertinent at all to this um story but anyway so we were talking and he's like I'm a little high but he's like uh is there going to be a, you know, is there going to be a big thing now where you can't say master bedroom or master bathroom, you know, because I mean, think about it. That's, that's from slavery, like the master's bedroom, the math, like now is there going to be like a whole thing where we can't say that? It was just so funny to me. And I, I, I sent him a video back and I go, oh my God, that never occurred to me, but I will never say it again. Done. It's not a big thing. (laughs) There's no big deal about it. I'm done. Done. I'm going to call it the main bedroom and the main bathroom. No big deal. The big deal comes from the people who, uh, you know, realize the blatant slavery reference and still fight it. Just fighting progress. Well, I'm not going to change the way I say that. You know, that's the big deal. (laughs) It's not a big deal to go like, oh, fuck. Yeah, I'm just going to call it like the big bedroom or the main bedroom. And of course, you know, he wrote back and he's like, oh, my God, you're totally right. (laughs) And he's just like, I'm embarrassed. Don't talk about this on your podcast. (laughs) But I was like, come on, man, this is the stuff. This is the stuff realizing these things and being changed by it. I just think it's so fucking cool. It's those relics that are so unnecessary. And it's funny that people cling to them so hard. It's like Jimmy's, you know. I I don't know if it's a New England thing or a Boston thing or a regional thing or maybe it's not. But sprinkles, the chocolate sprinkles, I grew up calling them Jimmy's. And uh, then I found out that that comes from Jim Crow. 
because they're the brown sprinkles. Boom, done. They're chocolate sprinkles forever now. You know, like, that took one second. You can't unring that bell. I know I say that a lot, but it's really relevant, and Jack McCoy says it on Law & Order a lot. I was walking Bo yesterday, and I heard that, and I thought, oh, wow. Wow, this is... It resonates so much with the drama that I am going through right now. Most of you know that for the last 16 years, I've collaborated on and off in the world of podcasting with Madge Weinstein, the the fair lesbian Madge Weinstein. 15 years ago, we created a political podcast called Eat This Hot Show, and we recently decided to bring it back because everything in in the 2020s is about a reboot, right? We had to bring everything back full house. We'll call it Fuller House. We're going to reboot Poltergeist, but this time they're going to be like a hundred scary clowns coming after the little boy instead of just one. Dallas, but Sue Ellen is running for Congress instead of an alcoholic. Sex in the city. Let's bring it back. Let's reboot it. Kim Cattrall, we don't need her. Let's just bring it back. Everything's a reboot. So that's what we decided to do. It's very, it's very uh, connected to the zeitgeist to bring back Eat This Hot Show. One of the conversations that we had been having behind the scenes is that we are three white people and that presents some complications whenever we discuss anything that implicates race. I don't always feel comfortable having conversations about people of color when there are no people of color on the show. By virtue of our white privilege, there are things that we just don't understand or maybe don't even see. I'll implicate myself here. I have this poem called Faggot, and I performed it in the finals of the National Poetry Slam, and it starts off and I say, for gay boys who've considered rainbows when suicide wasn't enough, which is a play on Entezaki Shange's work for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. In 2010, I had a bunch of poems that were featured in Texan Performance Quarterly, which is a performance-oriented scholarly journal, and I invited a number of different friends and professional colleagues to write responses to my body of work, my poetic body of work. And one of the people who I asked was my friend, Karma Chavez, who is currently the department chair of Mexican-American and Latino Latina studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And when I invited Karma to respond to my work, I said, hey, everybody else is gonna take a celebratory tone. And that's not what I want you to do. You are a feminist and you are uh, invested in critical race theory and ethnic studies and intercultural communication. I want you to be more critical of my work. One of the things that Karma pointed out in her response essay, which is titled Poetic Polemics, a Queer Feminist of Color Reflects on a Gay Slam Poet. One of the things that she said is that I needed to be more mindful of my social location as a white person, co-opting the artistry of other artists, but artists of color, and doing so in an unreflexive way. And she points out my appropriation of the Shange piece. Like, hey, you can't just 
take the title of her choreo poem and hijack it and put it into your piece about gay whiteness. I was so defensive at the time. I was like, you've got to be kidding. This is a celebration of Shange's work. Are you telling me that I can't have a point of identification with an artist of color? 11 years later, I get it. I understand what Karma was saying to me. My point is that I'm still learning about my racial biases and my own white privilege, and I step in doo-doo more often than I would like. I'm not without fault, but I am earnestly trying to do better. Part of doing better is reading the literature about race. It's listening to my friends of color when they speak up, because I know how uncomfortable it is for me whenever I feel like my sexuality is implicated in uncomfortable ways. And I have to say, raise my hand and go, okay, ugh, I hate to do this because I know now it seems like I'm the crying gay guy who has to point out homophobia all the time. Like, I know how uncomfortable that makes me when I have to do that. So now, now at the age of almost 45, I, I'm at a place where I'm more open and more receptive than maybe I was 11 years ago. One of the cool parts about my career choice is that the classroom really is its own uh, rehearsal space, I guess you could say, or, or or lab where you can figure things out with people who are younger. And so when people mess up in the classroom, I you have to acknowledge, okay, some somebody messed up. Maybe it's me or maybe it's another student, but I don't want this to turn into a pylon situation where everybody is jumping down this person's throat. Like for instance, a really good example of this would be pronoun use. It's only in the last two years that they became a plural pronoun in the Merriam-Webster dictionary. And, and so we're going through a, a radical paradigm shift right now, I think for the better when it comes to that pronoun. And I have students who really struggle with it. And so when a student misgenders somebody in class, I see the violence that that inflicts upon somebody who doesn't have their preferred pronoun used, but I also have to acknowledge, hey, we're all learning here. And there's a difference between somebody who's maliciously trying to misgender somebody and somebody who made an honest mistake and wants to do better. And we have to allow room for that. We have to allow room for growth. So that's just a little bit of what's in my heart right now. That brings us to Eat This Hot Show. I was not going to talk about the specifics of this in a public forum, but Madge uh, posted a podcast episode where she vaguely referenced some of the things that were going on. And she has every right to. I'm not mad about that. When you podcast, especially if you do a show like the show I do or the show that Madge does, you pull from your everyday life. You talk about things that you're experiencing. And yeah. So I wasn't going to share any of the details of it because I figured maybe Madge considers this like too sacred to share with an audience. I don't know why I thought that because Madge said, hey, this would make for a really interesting discussion on Eat This Hot Show. But by the time we got to that point in the conversation, I realized, oh my gosh, um, I, I don't think that, at least for now, that I can be friends with Madge. And by the way, that's a healthy thing too. That is a healthy thing too. If you feel like 
a relationship is not working for you at a particular point in time and it's not good for your mental health or if you feel like you're being gaslit or whatever the situation is, it's okay to say, I can't be friends right now with you. It doesn't mean that I think you're a horrible person or that we, we will never, ever be friends again. But right now I need a break and that, that's where I'm at. So let's circle back to what happened on Eat This Hot Show. So we have a text message thread where we discuss potential topics that we can do for the upcoming week. And Debbie pitched this idea of doing white savior films. And I had a couple of issues with that topic. The first of which is Eat This Hot Show is a little bit like The View where we discuss hot topics like something that's happening right now. And there are really no big white savior films (laughs) that are happening this year. The last big white savior film that I can think about is Green Book, which won the Academy Award a few years ago. But I'm not somebody who just operates from a position of no. You know how some people do that, right? Like, especially in a work setting where you come up with an idea and they go, no, I don't like that. And they just yuck all over your yum, but they don't have anything else to offer beyond that. That's just, I, that's not, that's not how I operate. So I thought about it and I said, okay, look, there are no white savior films now. And in fact, the Academy Award nominations are due to come out next week. We had this conversation about three weeks ago and they're expecting a record number of nominations for actors of color in films that are in fact not white savior films. So what may be better, because we were scheduled to do the Eat This Hot show just a few days after the Academy Award nominations were gonna be released, I was like, what we could do is we could talk about, we could celebrate the films that are getting nominated this year and the actors of color who are getting nominated, and we can talk about that in relation to the popularity of white savior films. And I said, oh, and my friend Marsalis, who was also on Big Brother, is coming out with a book called Supreme Actors, which is all about black actors in Hollywood and celebrating them. So he would be the perfect person to come onto the show. And then it wouldn't seem like, oh, here we are, three white people talking about actors of color without having anybody who is of color on the panel in the discussion. So everybody agrees that it's a great idea. I contact Marsalis. I invite him onto the show. I'm like, this will be a great way for you to promote your book and and to discuss these topics that are really close to your heart. So Marsalis is like, I'm in. And well, around the same time, there's that whole controversy on the television show, The Talk, where Sharon Osbourne has basically engaged in racist behavior on air with Cheryl Underwood. And there's this whole behind the scenes history of Sharon Osbourne saying racist things and doing racist things. And there's a whole investigation and she's about to lose her job. So I think Debbie was like, hey, what about this topic as well? And I was like, oh, that's perfect. Because one of the people who started the talk is Julie Chen. And Marcellus was on Big Brother, and we both know Julie Chen. It's just, it's perfect, right? It's perfect. A couple of days before we're scheduled to do the show, I send a text message to Debbie and to Madge. And I'm going to read you the actual text message exchange, because I feel like I, when I listened to Madge's show and she was so vague about it, I'm like, well, when you're so vague, it's very easy for you to misrepresent what actually happened. And if we're going to put it out there, we might as well just really put it out there because she seems to be so convinced in the intellectual heft of her argument that, you know, whatever. So a couple of days before we're scheduled to record Eat This Hot Show, 
I send the following text message. I'd say, I'd like to give Marsalis our topics as soon as possible. So far, we've got Oscar Nam talk and Sharon Osbourne talk. Two discussions about race seem like enough to me. Let's do three other topics that don't center race. Just so you understand the logistics of Eat This Hot Show, we will, since we rebooted the show, we have been going in with five potential topics, and then typically we only get to talk through three because we have so much to say about each individual topic. My thinking was that, look, we have one of my friends coming onto the show who is a black man, and I don't want him to think that we can only talk about race while he's there. Yes. It's a perfect opportunity to talk about some racism-related issues because now it won't feel like we're speaking for or as or in place of people of color. But I also want to be mindful that we're not tokenizing him. Like, okay, you're a person of color. You can only talk about race. Madge writes back and she says, well, what about child beheadings in Mozambique. Seriously, it's horrible. And then Debbie posts a link to a Yahoo story that has a um, a black girl in Mozambique looking down and looking sad. And, she, and Madge says, the children are being beheaded too, 11 years old. And I said, well, how can I put this? Um, I don't want to overload Marcellus with black topics. Otherwise, it'll feel like we're tokenizing him. It's overboard to do black Oscars. Sharon Osbourne's a racist and a country in Africa where kids are being beheaded. And so Madge replies, it's not a black topic. It's human rights. This is today's news. And I said, it's violence in an African country, honey. And Madge said, it's not a black topic. It's a topic. Children are being beheaded. And I said, children in Africa when we plan to have a black guest on. And Mad said, trying to spread awareness, I'm lost, makes no sense. I reply, it plays into the idea that Black people should be able to represent Africa, even if they have no interest in it. I'm not saying that's where you are coming from, but it's something we have to take into consideration because it'll come off that way regardless of our intent. And so Madge says, are you saying we should change what topics we would normally do because we have a Black guest? And just as a side note, Madge has a tendency to turn things into free speech issues that aren't really free speech issues or censorship issues that really aren't about censorship. That's just kind of like one of the running themes in her work, which is kind of funny to me because Madge just recently shut down an entire Facebook community because she didn't like the things people in that community were saying about her. And after this argument, she removed me as a mod from the Eat This Hot Show Facebook community, which I guess kind of makes sense because I quit the show. But I was the only one posting anything. <laughs> I was the only one posting any updates on that show. I helped create the show. But that's the sort of double standard that you're going to see permeate this exchange. So as I was saying, Madge says, are you saying we should change the topics we would normally do because we have a black guest? And I said, I'm saying that we should be mindful of how topic selection might come off to a black co-host. And Madge says, oh my god, or OMG, I can't, which I find a little dismissive, right? I'm, I'm trying to take the time to explain my point of view. And really, it's as easy as this. I mean, before I go any further, Marcellus is my friend. We trust one another. He is somebody who I've invited to be a guest on our show. If I don't feel comfortable with the topic, no is a complete sentence. 
I don't want to do this is a complete thought. I don't have to intellectualize it. I don't have to justify it. If the shoe was on the other foot, I would be like, okay, obviously it means a lot to you not to do this topic. We won't do the topic. After the OMG, I can't, I say, I, I rather than be dismissive in response, I try to further explain myself. And I say, I'm saying that black people in the US are often tokenized when the topic turns to Africa. Look, honey, you don't have to agree with me. I work closely with critical race people in my discipline, and I have more experience than you and how this shit gets framed. It may seem silly to us because we aren't black and don't have to deal with white people implicating Africa in even the most mundane conversation. Madge responds, I don't agree with you. Your academic bubble has made you nearsighted, I fear. That's ridiculous. This has nothing to do with race, and you know it. If you're worried about perception, then perhaps go to CNN. I want to impact both halves of this statement because in the first half she was running with this idea in the latest podcast that she did which i encourage you to listen to because you should get both sides of the story but one one of the ongoing arguments that she's been making is that intellectuals and specifically professors and i think her father was a professor and her father recently passed away but who knows maybe that has nothing to do with anything but her argument is basically that academics preach critical thought that they're really not critical they tell people how to think and that makes them as she says nearsighted that they're not open to other perspectives i think that this is a horseshit argument i think it echoes conservative talking points that are anti-intellectual i get where I, there is criticism made of people who are only in the ivory tower and are very book smart, but don't really understand how communication functions outside of academia. But I'm clearly not one of those people. Yes, I am learned in the way of critical theory, but I also am very invested in my street sense. In other words, my investment in critical thought, especially as it relates to race, is not restricted to conversations that I have in academia or the literature that I read. I was heavily invested in Poetry Slam for over a decade and engaged in critical performance work with countless poets and artists of color. The Black Lives Matter protests that happened in Los Angeles were largely centered in my exact neighborhood, not just adjacent, but in my exact neighborhood. When, when rioters infiltrated the Black Lives Matter protest, in West Hollywood, they burned down my pet groomer's store. Like when you saw the images overhead of the neighborhood on fire, that was my neighborhood. That was my neighborhood. To me, it's just sort of silly to assume that I'm operating only from an intellectual space and only from an academic space whenever I am broaching a conversation to do with race. I, I mean, I'm the one saying, let's bring on co-host of color in order to talk about this topic. I'm the one bringing on a friend who is Black. And my friend, by the way, is not an academic. To me, to suggest that I'm nearsighted because of my job is just sort of an intellectually lazy argument to make. At this point, Debbie makes a really interesting argument, and she writes, I mean, before we had to have a black person on to talk about anything pertaining to black people, right? Now that we have a person of color, we can't talk about too many topics if the person is black. Which I appreciate her point of confusion. It's just that her interpretation of what I'm saying lacks any sort of nuance with what I'm actually saying, which is yes, 
having Marcellus on the show enables us to talk about things that would be uncomfortable for us to talk about if we were only white people discussing it. However, I also don't want to only center race because that is problematic in its own right. These aren't mutually exclusive positions, but circling back, because at this point, things were getting so heated between me and Madge that um, I, I, I didn't even have time to address what Debbie was saying. So the other thing that Madge said that I didn't get to before was she said, that's ridiculous. This has nothing to do with race and you know it. If you're worried about perception, then go to CNN. And that to me, I mean, I just felt like everything that I was saying, I was really taking my time to try to explain myself to the best of my ability. And I felt like Madge just kept being dismissive of my point of view, finding all of these ways from OMG, I can't to the ad hominem argument that because I'm an academic that I, I don't truly understand what I'm saying, then to suggest that I am being dishonest in in my concerns about how only discussing race might affect my friend when she says this has nothing to do with race and I know it. What exactly do I know? And finally, that I only care about perception. No, what I care about is Marcellus is my friend. This is somebody who I go out and do things with. Somebody that I care about. If he is my guest on a podcast, I don't want to do anything that might make him feel uncomfortable. And as I said before, if the shoe was on the other foot and Madge didn't feel comfortable with the topic when she was bringing a guest on or Debbie, same thing, I wouldn't, that would not be the hill that I would want to die on. I would be like, okay, fine. And so at this point, I started to feel attacked. And that's exactly what I said. I said, I don't know why you're attacking me. And Madge said, don't start with that nonsense. I'm not attacking you. And I said, well, it feels that way to me. This was my way of crying uncle. Like, hey, the, the conversation is going off its rails. And right now, it seems like you aren't really uh, addressing the content or the substance of what I'm saying. And now it's becoming personal. Like, it's becoming about me being an academic or that I'm knowingly misrepresenting something, or I only care about perception. Like, rather than focusing on the content of what I'm saying, you're focusing on me and my character. And so in situations like this, it's important for me to raise my hand and say, okay, I'm uncomfortable with the way that I'm being treated here. Like, this is my safe word. <laughs> my safe word is, I feel attacked. Please stop. And a friend is going to recognize that and say, okay, well, I care about you. I don't want to do anything that makes you feel uncomfortable. So let's redirect the conversation or find a different way of talking about it or maybe put it down for a while. But Madge comes back and says, when I tell her that it feels like I'm being attacked, she says, nonsense. And I said, now my feelings are nonsense? Girl, I can't. And Madge says, I have nothing to do with your feelings, Reagan. What you're saying to me is nonsense. This isn't a therapy session. And that to me just, again, it's just so dismissive and so fucked up to say to somebody who is not just somebody you collaborate with. This is not work. I mean, in a way it's work. It's a hobby. But we don't get paid to do this. Madge and I have known each other for a really long time. I just expected a little bit more. It's not always easy to be vulnerable enough to say, hey, you're hurting my feelings or I feel attacked. And to come back if you're somebody's friend and say, this isn't a therapy session, this is nonsense, that's hurtful. And especially if the person has a history of mental illness that they've been very forthcoming about and talked about going to therapy and and what a world of good it's done them. So to, 
to throw that in my face just seemed like a cheap shot to me. So Madge claims that I'm gaslighting her, and then I, I'm like, oh, hold on, who is gaslighting who? And to me, that seemed like utter projection. So I stop and take stock of the situation. I'm like, hold on, you know, Marcellus is my friend. I'm inviting him onto the show. The way this conversation started was saying, hey, we have two topics at Center Race. Can we get some more topics that don't? And your response is, let's talk about beheadings and Mozambique. Then claiming that Mozambique has nothing to do with race. That is gaslighting. And he says, or she says, when I heard the story in Democracy Now!, I almost cried. I never once considered the race of the family. That's you, not me. I didn't even know their race, do you? And I'm like, hello, who is gaslighting? <laughs> you know, you this we're talking about beheadings in an African country that is, I, I believe, 90% composed of black people. You and Debbie sent me two links of stories about what was happening and the pictures and both links were exclusively of black people. And then I took the time to explain to you that regardless of your intention, white people calling on black people to represent Africa or talk about Africa is something that is a common occurrence and may not be well received if the person has no particular investment in Africa. We're bringing Marcellus onto the show because the other two topics that we're talking about are directly in his wheelhouse. So at this point, we have two different issues that have emerged from this conversation. We have the intellectual issue, which is, is my concern legitimate? And maybe not everybody agrees with me and, and my take on the ways in which a discussion about Africa may implicate race in uncomfortable ways or you don't have to agree with me. I mean, what it boils down to is this is my friend I'm bringing on the show. I don't want to do the topic. That should be the end of the conversation. But I do think that I have a valid intellectual point to make about it. I also believe that I wasn't dismissive of Madge in the way that Madge was challenging my point. I took the time to explain my point of view. I didn't use minimal response cues. I didn't turn around and attack Madge's character. In my responses, I'm doing my very best to talk through my position, even if she doesn't agree with it. She doesn't have to agree with it, but this is my position. The other issue for me is the way that I'm being talked to in the conversation and how I feel like I'm being treated in a dismissive manner, the way that I feel like my character is being attacked. What I felt like what should have been a topic or a conversation about the substance of our relative or our respective arguments turned into these cheap, lazy attacks on my character. And when I finally said, like, stop, please, this is hurting me. Like, it's my feelings are being hurt. I was told it was not a therapy session. And so then it sort of crossed a line into, whoa, uh, this is turning into something different that I'm not okay with. And so we have to have kind of two different conversations. And it's important to try to, um, to uh, parse these two things out. We pretty much ended the text message conversation after that. And I felt like a line had been crossed. And I wanted to sleep on it and see how I felt the next day. And I also didn't want to continue having a conversation in text message. Because as we all know, text message 
flattens communication. You can't tell, sometimes when somebody might say something to you and you get their nonverbals, if it's just in text, you don't see that. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir. Everybody knows this at this point, right? So I was like, okay, I don't know how I feel about this, but I want to be open to having an actual conversation on Zoom and and then go from there. That's when I'll make decisions. So I wake up the next day and I get a text message from Madge. And it's basically her saying, this is how we're going to go about doing the show in the future. Nobody's going to have to pitch topics. We're just going to bring topics on and... I was like, hold on, I'm not even in a place right now to discuss whether or not we'll pitch topics and and much less have you make some type of executive decision on everybody's behalf when there are three co-hosts in this show. I'm thinking we need to have a conver- we need to have a conversation. We need to sit down and have a face-to-face conversation on Zoom. So I respond and I say, we need to have a conversation preferably on Zoom. And Mad says, I'm willing to have that conversation as part of the show, not privately. And I said, okay, well, I'm asking as a friend, not as a co-host. Yesterday was a deal breaker for me, and I'm interested in salvaging our friendship, which is why I want to talk in something that approximates face-to-face dialogue. So Madge says, I'm too emotional to talk about this right now. And so I point out the irony of like, hold on, why is it okay for you to bring up your emotions? But when I bring up my emotions, it's not a therapy session. Like imagine me saying that to you in this moment and not respecting the fact that you're too hot right now or you're too emotional to talk, not taking that at face value. So because I said, because I pointed out that there are two different issues going on here, you know, there's the content of our arguments and then there is the friendship issue at play. Mad said that I was being emotionally manipulative and she claimed that I was being emotionally, hold on, I'm just going to read the actual text. She said, I feel like you pivoted in the conversation to the topic of friendship because you knew you had no leg to stand on with respect to the actual conversation related to the beheadings topic. I think you're being emotionally manipulative and I don't buy it. Which again is just so uh, condescending and rude and dismissive. And this is something that Madge repeated in her podcast that I pivoted to the issue of friendship because I somehow couldn't deal with the intellectual heft (laughs) of her side of the debate that we were having. I'm no psychologist, I freely admit that, but it just felt to me like a lot of projection. I was happy to stay on topic and to have an intellectual discussion and not turn it into um, like attacking her character. And that's what I was getting in response. It only became an issue that involved feelings and our friendship after she was attacking me because she couldn't respond to the substance of what I was saying. Like, here I am laying out an argument to you, and instead of responding to the content of my argument, you say that I'm an intellectual and that's made me nearsighted. Sorry, it's just not that intellectually heavy of an argument. That, that you're making, it reminds me of like, she's really latched on to this cancel culture thing lately. And to me, cancel culture is, uh, again, more of a uh, kind of a convenient argument. So you can sidestep any discussion of 
the intricacies of what somebody vocalizing a critique is saying, right? So if somebody brings up some type of valid concern, you don't have a conversation about the actual concern. Instead, you cry cancel culture. And so then the debate comes, turns into this. And by the way, cancel culture is a conservatively deployed term, much like the use of politically correct it's politically, it's the politically correct finger quote thing, finger quote thing of uh, the 2020s. So what happens is it short circuits any type of critical, cultural, important conversation to have about race or gender or sexuality or what have you, because instead you get derailed talking about the politics of this boogeyman of cancel culture or political correctness. It's a diversionary tactic. That's all it is. Even me telling her, after we finally had a face-to-face conversation on Zoom where I was like, I can't be friends with you right now. Like, I can't do it. I feel like lines were crossed. And I didn't go into the conversation that way. It was only when I saw where the conversation was going and how much I was being gaslit that I was like, I can't do this. For my own emotional health and well-being, I cannot stay in this friendship right now. And so when she went on to her podcast, which she did less than 24 hours later, she said that basically me saying to her that I can't be her friend right now was cancel culture. So you see the strategy here, right? You take something that is complex, that has a lot of layers going on, and you strip it of all of its intricacies and you say, cancel culture. No, it's not cancel culture. Sometimes people have had enough. And sometimes it's in their own best mental health interest to say, I can't, I am, I, I was, I like, honestly, I walked out of the situation feeling so gaslit. I know that gaslighting is a buzzword right now and people use it and sometimes they don't use it in the appropriate context. I walked out of this conversation with Madge feeling like, am I crazy? Am I crazy to think that I should have some agency in deciding the, the type of topics that I want to expose my friend to, that I, that I want to be sensitive to topic selection because this person is my friend? Am I crazy to think that when you're, you, you are the person sending me links to stories about beheadings in an African country with, loaded with pictures of black children and black families that this topic is going to implicate race? And you're telling me it has nothing to do with race? That's gaslighting. I found myself thinking, hold on, because I want to give people the benefit of the doubt, right? And especially somebody who I've been friends with for a really long time. I'm like, hold on, am I, maybe I am misreading this. Maybe, like, am I wrong here? Am I crazy? That is gaslighting. It's gaslighting. So uh, we waited probably like a good week, maybe a little bit longer, and we finally had a conversation and uh, talked it talked about it. I'm not going to say talked it through because there was absolutely no resolution. And so I did something with Madge that is very similar to what I'm doing in this podcast. I, I, I walked through the text message exchange line by line, and she just could not cop to anything. Like, OMG, I can't. No, that's not dismissive. I was being dismissive to her. And then she would say, well, you can't take accountability for anything. And I'm like, hold on, what is happening? What is happening? So she went on and said during the face-to-face conversation that she found, again, it being that, that I was being manipulative um, because clearly she knows my motives, that I was being manipulative when I brought 
friendship into the situation and that it was manipulative for me to bring up the fact that we were friends for 16 years. And what I'm about to tell you right now is really when I, this is the point where I said, I, I can't be friends with this person right now. I just can't be friends with this person. So um, I said, she took issue with me saying that we were friends for 16 years, which is just factually accurate. We've been friends for 16 years. I've been friends with Madge since 2005. And so Madge's response was that we really weren't friends. We were more of professional friends because we don't really talk all that much. And there are people that she talks to every day and there are a lot of things that are happening in her life that I don't really know about. And that was just hurtful to me. I mean, I do consider Madge my friend. In the last episode of Pod Save the Queens we did, I was talking about how much I love Debbie and Madge and I care for them. And I, I assumed that we all felt that way about each other. The people that I go into work with at my day job, I would consider most of them to be my work acquaintances, my colleagues. That's not the way that I feel about Madge. And so it was, and I, I'm not of the opinion that you have to talk to somebody every single day for 16 years, or you can't have periods over a 16 year friendship where you're closer at some periods than you are at other periods. To me, the mark of a good friendship is when I get on the phone with somebody and we have a conversation, it's like no time has gone by whatsoever. And it's ridiculous that I would even have to justify this or, or to intellectualize this. When Madge's partner died, Rachel Can and I got onto an airplane and we flew to Miami and we delivered the funeral service for Madge's partner. I wouldn't do that for somebody who I didn't consider to be a friend. And that was early in our friendship. And so I brought that up and Madge said that basically that I was, I guess, being manipulative for bringing that up or using, I like, I can't believe that you would bring that up um, and use it as kind of like ammunition. I'm like, I'm not. Like, I'm bringing it up to point out that we are friends, that I wouldn't do this for somebody that I didn't care about, that, that I didn't consider to be a friend. And I don't know why you are trying to diminish that friendship. That was really the point that I realized, okay, we're kind of at a point of no return here. And this to me seems like, it, it felt like to me that I was going into the conversation with an open heart and wanting to fix things. And Madge was trying to torpedo things and really sabotage our friendship. Even if, it, even if she wasn't aware of it. And, and to her credit, Madge has had a lot of stuff that has happened to her recently between the death of her father and um, the death of Tampon Tammy and other things going on in her life. And from my experience, at times where I've lashed out at people that I care about, it's uh, a lot of times it has nothing to do with them. It, it's misdirected rage or grief coming out in funny ways. And then I realize it later and I'm like, or so, a lot of times I realize it as it's happening. So as I'm lashing out at the person, I'm like, I have to stop. This has nothing to do with you. This has nothing to do with you. I'm making this about you because it's easier to deal with this than it is some of the other peripheral things that are happening in my life. Things that I'm trying to compartmentalize and now the anxiety and the anger and the grief, it, it's, it's pulsing out of me in weird ways. I'm sympathetic to that, but I'm also not gonna be somebody's punching bag. And that's why 
at that point when she was debating when she was splitting hairs with me about whether or not we were friends that's when i knew okay i'm done like i'm 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 done i'm i'm not going to remain in what is currently what has not always been but what is currently a toxic relationship with somebody and this was so out of character for Madge in the 16 years that I've known her to treat me this way. And it just, um, it blindsided me. It blindsided me. And that's why it's important for me to acknowledge that there's stuff going on in Madge's life and clearly other stuff that I'm not even privy to as far as she was insinuating that may lead her to act this way in relation to me at this moment in time. But all I know is that for now, I can't be friends with somebody like this. Maybe that'll change. When it became clear to Madge that I was done, that this was not just me, this was not some like performative uh, gesture of being upset. And I, I was done. Uh, her tune kind of changed a little bit and she tried to convince me to stay on Eat This Hot Show, that she thought that this wasn't anything that we couldn't work past. And I just disagree. I disagree. Strangely enough, the previous episode of Eat This Hot Show, we did a segment on friendships. (laughs) I mean, could it get any more ironic than that? Uh, And so one of the things that we talked about and I, I brought in clips of these experts talking about friendships and uh, and how there's all this literature out there that ha- teaches you how to navigate relationships, like romantic relationships, how to get in a relationship. Then if you want to get out of a relationship, what do you have to do? But you don't have any of the same type of literature for friendships. And that can make ending a friendship or taking a break from a friendship. There's no clearly articulated protocol. But one of the things that we also talked about was how... When you are trying to communicate your boundaries to a friend or express to them, hey, I can't take this, if they aren't receptive to that, then there's really nowhere you can go. If I say to somebody, hey, when you do X, Y, and Z, it hurts me, they need to be mindful of that. And if the shoe's on the other foot, I need to be mindful of that too. If somebody comes up to me and says, hey, you're hurting my feelings, I don't want to take that as an opportunity to debate or to suggest that they're being emotionally manipulative. I want to hear them out. And when I'm at my best, when I'm at my best, and I'm nobody is ever always at their best, right? But when I'm at my best, my response is going to be, even if I don't understand their point of view, you're my friend. I don't want to do anything to intentionally hurt you, so I'll stop doing it. Period. End of story. That conversation is never easy to have with somebody. It's so uncomfortable. And if you have the balls to have that conversation with somebody and they're not receptive to it, where do you go? Where do you go? I have a few things to say in closing. The first of which is I want to acknowledge that when it comes to issues of race and racism, I'm flawed. And it's not always easy to acknowledge those flaws. And when somebody calls them out, not just me, I think many white people, our predisposition is to get in a defensive posture. But I'm I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to read more. I'm trying to listen more, to reflect more on how my actions might affect 
people who are not white. I've still got a long way to go. And look, the fact of the matter is a lot of times when people point out racism or things that might be interpreted as racist, there's a lot of finger wagging and not a lot of self-reflection. And I'm at a place in my life after 45 years of living where I don't want to just point the finger where I want to turn inward and recognize my past flaws and my current flaws. That's why I love what Sarah Silverman said in that clip that I played at the beginning of the episode. It's really not that big of a deal. Like if somebody who points something out that might be interpreted as racist does so, then uh, you think about it. You don't out of pocket dismiss it. Give yourself a little bit of time to think about it, to consider it. And the second thing that I want to say is that although I'm clearly hurt by this situation, I'm not angry. I don't think that Madge is a bad person. Clearly, I don't. I still care for Madge. Even though I can't be friends with her right now, I, I still do care for her. I don't think that she was fair in the way that she represented what transpired between the two of us. My hope is that in time she reflects on the exchange and has a better understanding of my point of view, but she would probably say vice versa. She would probably hope that in time I look back at this and I'm like, wow, Madge was really right. But in my heart of hearts, I believe it's gonna be the other way around. I just do, I just do. And uh, there are probably things that are much larger that are happening right now that uh, have led to this that have nothing to do with me. And maybe I'm wrong about that assessment too, but that's basically the state of... <laughs> my podcasting world. And I also say that I don't, I haven't had anybody to really bounce any of this off of, which is super unfortunate. I, I live alone during the pandemic. This has been, this has kind of consumed my world for the past couple of weeks. Unlike Madge, I don't have a partner who I can bounce ideas off of and say, hey, look, this is happening right now and it sucks. I, 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 it's just me and my dog. I can only talk to Bo about it. I tried to reach out to Debbie and was like, hey, let's clear the air. Debbie doesn't want to have any conversation with me uh, under the guise of I don't want to get in the middle of things. And I'm like, it's not about getting in the middle. Like I would never ask, I would never place you in the middle, but it's healthy if I'm not going to do the show anymore for us to at least clear the air. Had never heard any response from her, which sucks and it's hurtful because we were getting really close and I thought that our friendship was deeper than that. For better or worse, it's probably good that I did this podcast. I mean, I know it's airing Dirty Laundry and I know it's just drama. You know, a lot of people are going to just see it as drama and I don't want it to turn into <laughs> the big falling out that happened when Fausto and Mark left Eat This Hot Show and it became warring sides and I that I have no interest in that but this is it's a pretty significant event in my life and I've felt very let down and hurt and upset and I've had nobody to turn to during lockdown because I've taken lockdown so seriously I've been in lockdown for over a year I haven't seen a friend let alone hugged a friend in over a year and so I in a way I had to do this so I guess I thank Madge for putting her side of the story out there because I really needed, I needed to vent. I needed to share what was happening. And I guess, I guess we owe it to our audience to let them know 
what is happening because I know a lot of people love Eat This Hot Show. And, and, and Madge was even like, well, what about the fans? You're just going to walk out on the fans? I'm like, I don't want to, but I can't remain in a, a situation that is not emotionally, psychologically healthy for me. And that's where I'm at. I've been talking for nearly an hour, so I'm going to shut up <laughs> at this point. I've probably said too much. I may regret posting this later, but this is my truth. This is my, tr I, it's never a good idea to like break out the text messages and be like, this is what was actually said because it's really airing dirty laundry. But that approach is perhaps a lot more fair than just paraphrasing what happened. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, just come on to the Fox in the City, the Foxhole webpage on Facebook, and I'll try to be as forthcoming as I can be about any questions that you might have. By the way, if you haven't already done so, you have to watch Promising Young Woman. I watched it last night. I cried. I'm still shooketh from it.